weeks ago, two weeks ago, before church camp, we started a sermon series on the letters from Jesus to the seven churches. Seven churches in what was then Asia, Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. Get my controller to work here. See on the map sort of where those churches were. Again, that's modern-day Turkey. We begin with Ephesus, one of the most prominent churches in the area, the most prominent church in the area, um, a prominent church in the New Testament. We kind of looked at how Ephesus is kind of behind the scenes of, of much of the New Testament. And it was a prominent church in the area. It was largely considered, as most think, that it was the mother church of the area. It was the church that sort of planted all of the other churches that these other letters that we'll come to are written to. It was led by prominent leaders. Paul planted the church in Ephesus. Later, he sent Timothy to pastor at Ephesus, and at the end of his life, the disciple John served as the bishop of Ephesus. It was a prominent church, but from the prominent church in Ephesus, now we turn to the lesser-known church, the church of Smyrna, or a lesser-known church, the church of Smyrna. We don't have any record of this birth. We don't see Paul ever going there as missionary journeys. Most think that it was started as a result of what we find in Acts 19, where Paul was in Ephesus for two years preaching, and it says, as a result of his time there, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And most think that many of these churches that we're going to come to, including Smyrna, are a result of that verse. But while we don't know the story of the birth of Smyrna, we do know a story of we do know a little bit of the story of Smyrna. And that is that Smyrna is the story of a church that was constantly under the threat of persecution. <clears throat> One of the early martyrs, in fact, the, the earliest record we have of a martyr outside of the Christian martyr, outside of the New Testament, is that of the Bishop Polycarp. And Polycarp was the bishop of this church, the church of Smyrna. In fact, when we look at the, life, the timeline of, of Polycarp's life, he could have very well been the bishop at the time that this letter we're getting ready to read was written. Remember I said the angels could have been the pastors, the leaders of the churches. And the bishop of Smyrna was Smyrna was Polycarp. He could have been the angel who received this letter. Polycarp was burned at the stake at the age of 86 years old, which was in the year 155 A.D., which would make him in his mid to late 20s when the book of Revelation was written. We also know that Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So we know he was a believer at the time that this letter was written. Very likely he could have been the Bishop of Smyrna. So as we read this letter, as we hear what is, is written in this letter, it's very well that we could hear John writing to a church led by his young disciple Polycarp. And if we're to sum up the message of this letter in a statement, in a sentence, it might be the title that we have. The message is, don't be fearful, but remain faithful. Do not be fearful, because as we read, we'll see there's a lot of reasons to be fearful in Smyrna. Persecution is coming. But the letter says, don't fear, but instead remain faithful. And Polycarp will follow those words, and one of the reasons I think he does is because he received this letter. So join me as we read Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. The shortest of the verses, the shortest of the letters, only four verses, but one that is packed with encouragement for those.
suffering for Jesus. Verse 8. Starting verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, the one who's died and came, the one who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for your word. In particular, we're grateful for this portion of your word that we have before us. This letter to a church that existed in a real place in real time, but a letter that has been kept for us so that we might be encouraged through this letter, so that we might be led to faithfulness and not to fear. So Father, help us as we come to your word. May your spirit apply it to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many have said that the preacher, when he goes to preach, has two aims, two goals he should have in regards uh, to the people that he is preaching to. One, he should try to comfort the afflicted. The second is he should try to afflict the comfortable. I'll let you decide which one of those you are. Uh, in the first letter, however, we saw Jesus afflicting the comfortable. He did provide some comfort. He provided some encouragement to the people at Ephesus in his letter. He he praised them for many of the things they were doing right. But the real reason that he was writing this letter to them was to cause them a little discomfort. Because they had gotten too comfortable. He says, you're doing all these things well, but you're just going through the motions. You have lost your love. You have lost your love. And you can almost picture the the church in Ephesus as they read this. And as they hear this read, they begin to squirm a little bit in their seats. If you've ever been in a, a room where you can almost feel the entire room start to get uncomfortable as the preacher is preaching. I was at a conference in the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, where the Louisville, Kentucky basketball team plays. There were thousands of us there listening to uh, Ligon Duncan preach. But the room was completely Silent, not because we were all sleeping, but because there was just a holy discomfort as the Holy Spirit took the word and just applied it to our lives. On all of us, the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell on us as the word was preached. It was one of the most powerful moments I'd ever been in. It was just a simple, if if you've heard Ligon, he's not a dramatic preacher, just a simple preaching of the word that hit us all in that moment. Sometimes the comfortable, we need to be made uncomfortable. Sometimes our toes need to be stepped on a little. But sometimes the afflicted need to be comforted. And the church in Smyrna is a, is a church that is afflicted. And the words that Jesus writes to them are, are words that challenge them. They're words that encourage them. But primarily they are words that are meant to comfort them. The church of Smyrna was of course located in the city of Smyrna. 
Uh, Smyrna is the only city of the seven churches that we're going to hear from. It's the only city that is still in existence today. It's not known as Smyrna anymore, but it's the city of Izmar in Turkey, which is one of the top, the most, the top five most populous cities in Turkey. It has a population of almost three million today. The time this letter was written, it had a population of around 200,000, uh, which compared to three million doesn't sound like much, but in that day it was a, a very large city. Like Ephesus, Smyrna was a major city in that region, in Asia. You can see on the map, like Ephesus, if you look down at Ephesus and look up, they both have a harbor. And, and Smyrna was known as the port of Asia because as you can see, the harbor in Smyrna that led into Smyrna, it had a very narrow opening that could be easily blocked off and defended and, and therefore ships would be safe in the harbor. And many would travel to Smyrna because they knew it was a safe place to live. Smyrna was also a modern city for that time. It, was, it had libraries, gymnasiums, paved streets. It had Asia's largest open-air theater. Uh, the coins minted in, minted in Smyrna described Smyrna as first in Asia in beauty and in size. It was a large city and it was a beautiful city. But while Smyrna was similar in many ways to the city of Ephesus, one of the things that made it unique and one of the things that greatly affected the church in Smyrna was that it was a city that was known for its loyalty to Rome. Now all these cities that we're going to read about are in the Roman Empire, but Smyrna was dedicated to Rome. In the first century BC, the Roman senator Cicero described Smyrna as Rome's most faithful and ancient allies. And one of the ways that Smyrna showed this allegiance was by being a center of worship. To the Roman Empire. There were multiple temples in Smyrna that were dedicated to different past and present Roman emperors. And it was required that all citizens of the city offer sacrifices to the emperor. If you were going to be a citizen of Smyrna, you must worship the emperor. Something that Christians, of course, could not do. They could not join in the crowd shouting that Caesar was Lord because they knew that there was only one Lord. And that was Jesus. And He was their Lord. And their refusal to worship the emperor led to opposition. It led to them being ostracized in the city, and eventually it led to martyrdom. Many Christians in Smyrna were killed for their faith in Jesus. Again, the first recorded Christian martyr outside the New Testament is Smyrna, but in one of the records I read, it listed Polycarp as the 13th martyr of Smyrna. There were many more. And since that day, there have been been many more. Christianity Today reports that since the days that this was written, over 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. Open Doors tells us that although this was written in 2014, this Christianity Today article was in 2014, the pace has not slowed, but in fact it has quickened. Just last year, Open Doors tells us that over 340 million Christians Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 340 million Christians live in a place like Smyrna. That's one in eight Christians. And you think about the letters, we have one of seven. So the, 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 the statistics have not changed. One in eight Christians live in a place where they fear their lives because of their faith in Jesus. Again, just last year, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. I've seen many things that say that is a very low estimate. It's actually much higher than that. 
4,448 4,488 churches, like the church in Smyrna and other Christians, Christian buildings, have been attacked. And 4,277 believers were arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned without any trial. No, no form of justice. All you've got to do is say they're a Christian and they, they get thrown in jail and it's believed. Believed they're guilty. Again, this is just in 2020, all of those numbers. Well, what would Jesus say to these Christians? How would He comfort them? How would He encourage His afflicted church? Unfortunately, we don't have to wonder what He would say because we have what He has said. What He said to the Christians in Smyrna in the first century, He says to persecuted Christians in the 21st century. And the first thing that Jesus tells the persecuted church, the first comfort that He gives them, is by telling them that He is greater than death. He is greater than death. What do the Christians who face the reality of dying every day for their faith need to know? They need to know that there is something greater than death. And that is the Savior who is awaiting them on the other side of it. In each of these letters, uh, Jesus introduces Himself in a unique way. He, he reveals something. I said last week that Revelation, if you read verse 1, tells us that it is a revealing of Jesus Christ. And to each of these churches, He reveals something about Himself that that particular church needs in a particular way. Something that they need to face what they are facing. And the church in Smyrna, what they need to know about Jesus is that He is the one who is the first And the last, He is the one who died and came to life. So two things He says. First, He says, I am the one who is the first and the last. He is the eternal one. Go back as far into eternity past as you can go, and Jesus was there. John says at the beginning of his Gospel that in the beginning, Jesus was. When the beginning took place, whatever, wherever you want to go and say, this is when time began, Jesus already was. He always was, was He? He's always been. And He always will be. He was the first and the last. He is, he is eternal. Nothing will outlast Jesus. Not even persecution. Persecution will end, but Jesus will still be. Your pain will end, but Jesus will still be. Your suffering will be complete, but Jesus will still be. Jesus is the eternal one. Here what he is really emphasizing in this this first introduction of himself is that, that he is God. He is divine, for only God is eternal. He's associating himself with how the Father introduced himself in verse 8 of chapter 1. He said, I am the Alpha and Omega. The one who was and who is to come. The one who is and who it was and who is to come. Alpha and Omega, you know, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He said, I am the A to Z. I'm the first and the last. And Jesus, the one who is walking among His churches, we saw last week. The one who will say in a little bit, I know what you are experiencing. He says, don't mistake who I am. I am the eternal God. This is who I am. But not only does he emphasize in this introduction his divinity, but he emphasizes also his humanity because he was the one who died and came to life. The New Living Translation said, he's the one who was dead, but is now alive. 
And we, we're familiar with those statements because we hear them in church. We talk about it all the time. But those statements should baffle us. How can someone who died be alive? But what's even, even more baffling is when you add that to the previous statement. How can the one who is eternal die? How can the one who, who was the first, who, who never had a beginning, take a first breath and take a last breath as a human? What is Jesus saying to His church? This church who, He says later, you're going to be thrown in prison and, and some of you are going to need to be faithful even unto the point of death. What is He revealing about Himself in this description? He's telling them, I have been where you have been. I have been where you're about to be, actually. You're not there yet, but I'm already there and I have been there. You've seen those shirts. Been there, done that, got the shirt. Jesus says, I have been there and I have done that. I have died and I have came back to life again. Later on in Revelation, we will see Jesus standing. But when you look at Him, you see Him knowing that He was slain. It's not the right verse. There we go. I saw a lamb standing as though slain. He has been slain. He is bearing the marks of death, but he is standing. He's alive. Since Smyrna Christians, I am not about to ask you to do something that I have not already done. And because I've already done that, I can tell you you're going to be okay. Because I died, and in my death, I have conquered death. Standing at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus said to those gathered, said to his, his sisters Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Don't mistake where he says this. He's standing at a tomb with a dead person laying inside of it. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked them this question. Do you believe this? I think I'm right in saying this. He asked them why Lazarus is still in the tomb. Do you believe this? And now he asks the Christians in Smyrna, who in essence are facing their own tombs. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe that though you will die for me, if you believe in me, yet you will live? Do you believe this, Christian? Do you believe this, Smyrna? Believe it because I have accomplished it. Look at me, I am the one who died but is now alive. What Christians facing persecution need to know most in order to remain faithful is that they need to know who Jesus is. That's what all of us need to know. That's, that's what the book of Revelation is. It, it is unveiling to us who Jesus is, what He has done, and what He is doing. He is the eternal God who became flesh who lived and died and rose again, and who comes to us and says, I am greater than any obstacle that lies in your way to faithfulness, even death. Look at me. Look to me. C.T. Studd, you know, you've heard me talk about C.T. Studd enough that you know that I I love the story of C.T. who left behind a world of, of riches and fame to go take the gospel to a place where he could have very easily been killed. What was it that drove C.T. Studd to do this? He saw Jesus as the one who was the first and the last, the one who died and rose again. And he said, if Christ be God and died for me, then nothing I do, no sacrifice I make can be too great. No sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. So in essence, what Jesus is saying 
to the Samaritan Christians. Look at me and you, and any sacrifice I call you to make, even death, will pale in comparison. I am greater than death. I, I am greater than the life you have before death. We'll come to that a little bit later. It's the first comfort. He is greater than death. He has conquered death. Death is not the end of the story. Death does not win. Therefore, you do not need to fear it. Second thing he says is that he knows. I know your suffering. Jesus knows the suffering of his people. That phrase, and we're going to see these patterns. I mentioned the patterns, but we're going to see them over and over again in this letter, these letters. But in every single letter, Jesus says to the church, I know. Now, sometimes when Jesus says, I know, it's a little bit of that affliction, afflicting. Because when he says to some of the churches, I know what you're doing, they begin to shuffle in the pews because they really wish Jesus didn't know what they were doing. They they were hoping that he didn't know about that. But when Jesus says the words to the church in Smyrna, a wave of comfort sweeps over the church. He knows. Even more than Polycarp, their their pastor knows. He knows what they're going through. He sees them. Do you know that Jesus knows what you are going through? Nothing that you are enduring is hidden from His sight. One of the hardest parts of suffering often is the the loneliness. It, 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 It isolates us from others so often. Even when others are doing the best they can to walk with you in their suffering, there is a sense of loneliness that comes with suffering. But Jesus reminds the church in Smyrna, you might be hidden from the rest of the world, but I see you. I know what is going on in your life. I know what you're going through. I even know what you're about to go through, Smyrna. And he points out three things in verse 9 that are very obvious to us. But first he says, I, I know your tribulation." Other translations uh, say afflictions or sufferings. I I know your suffering. And this word that is translated in these different ways, it, it refers not to minor irritants or inconveniences, but it refers to real hardships. It's a word that refers to things being pressed together like grapes that are pressed to produce juice. There's a constant pressure on the church in Smyrna. James Hamilton says that this word reminds us that tribulation is is painful and wearisome. It it pecks away at us little by little, chipping away at our joy, taking the wind out of our perseverance. And things only worsen as tribulation drags on. It's a constant pressure. Now our tribulation might not come in the form of persecution like the Smyrnans, but there are many ways that the enemy brings these kind of tribulations into our lives. Things that peck away at us little by little. But, but notice what Jesus does not do to their suffering. He, he doesn't minimize it. He, he doesn't look at them and say, okay, come on, Smyrnans, it's not that bad. Look, look at what I went through after all. He doesn't belittle them and say, Smyrna, if you were only a little bit stronger, why aren't you handling this better than you are? Instead, he says, Smyrna, I see you. I know what you're going through. Your suffering is real. Neither does Jesus offer them an escape. 
He, he doesn't give them an advice on how to escape the suffering that's coming to them because there is no escape. In order to remain faithful in Jesus in Smyrna, it means that you are going to have to experience suffering. Under the emperor Domitian, who was the emperor at the time, it was a capital offense to refuse to offer the yearly sacrifices to the emperor. The only escape from suffering was compromise of denying Jesus. That's why the church in Smyrna is so small, because so many, they compromised. But those who wanted to remain faithful, there was no escape for suffering. And there are seasons in our lives and and situations for many of us that there is no escaping the suffering except by compromise. We We don't have all the answers but in many situations, like the situation in Smyrna, we, we know that God could have provided a way out. God could have removed the persecution, but He didn't. We don't have the answer to that. All we know is there was not an escape route. And we don't know why our lives here, right now, in this moment, don't involve the kind of suffering that Christians in Afghanistan do. Or we don't have the answers why the suffering and the tribulation in your life is different and more than the person who's sitting beside you. But I think that it's significant that this letter is one of the only two of the letters that receives only words of comfort. Because there's a special comfort that comes from God when walking through tribulation. A special grace that is not found in seasons of ease. The only two churches that receive only words of comfort and encouragement are Smyrna and Philadelphia. And most Church, most commentators will say that of all the churches, if you were in the Asia Minor and examining all the churches that, of, of that day, those would be the two that le- looked the least impressive. They were the smallest. They were the least significant. They were the most insignificant in the eyes of the world. Smyrna, they didn't have all the activities of Ephesus. They couldn't. They didn't want to draw attention to themselves. It didn't have the well-known leaders of John and Paul and Timothy. It went unnoticed by much of the world. But Jesus says, it does not go unnoticed by me. I know you and I see you and I am with you in your sufferings. We don't know the reality of verses like Philippians 3.10 where Paul talks about the, 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 the goodness and the joy and the extra grace that is found in suffering for Jesus. But over and over again, we see that in the New Testament. And over and over again, we see that displayed in our persecuted brothers and sisters. And we see it here in this letter to Smyrna. I know your tribulation. Second thing Jesus says is, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. Now there are two Greek words that are used in the New Testament for for poor. To describe a poor person. One means that you only have the basics. You don't have anything extra. You don't have anything extravagant. You have the bare means. The bare minimum. But the other word means that you have nothing at all. It refers to, it refers to utter par- poverty. It's the word patokos. It's the state of having little or no money and little or no material possessions. Often understood as the state of someone who must beg to survive. And this is the word that is used here to describe the poverty of the Smyrna Christians. These Christians had nothing. Not participating in the worship at the temple meant that Christians in Smyrna were ostracized from society. They, they were not allowed to have many of the jobs that were available to the rest of the citizens. 
Only the jobs no one else wanted were available to them. This still happens today in, in many places. A few years ago, I think it was maybe it was last year or two years ago on uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we saw a video, and I don't remember the country, but showed this that this is still the reality. And if you remember, you remember a, a man who was lowered into a sewer to clean it, to do something, get something unstuck. I don't know what he was doing, but when he came out, he was covered with what was in the sewer. And the reason he did that is he said, this, this is the only job that we're allowed to have. No one else will do this job, and no one else will give us any other job. But if you watched that video, you remember the face of that poor man. Poverty, I mean it in that sense. And that is, what you might remember is that it was not the face of someone who was poor. But it was the face of someone who had found something of greater value than any high-paying job could bring. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I know that you are poor. I know that you are poor, but you, in reality, are rich. A few years, a few letters later, he's going to look at a different church and say the complete opposite. He says to Laodicea, you think you're rich and the world thinks you're rich. In the world's eye, you are rich. You have great wealth. But when I look at you, you know what I see? I see that you are bankrupt. Laodicea was a rich church that was really poor. But Smyrna is a poor church that has true riches. James reminds us that this is the way it often works in the kingdom of God. That those who are poor in the world, God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. The Christians in Smyrna were poor in the world, but they were rich in faith. Hebrews 10 tells us that many Christians, they had their homes plundered. They were, they were robbed. And in many countries today, Christians have this same experience. The government looks the other way. When they're mistreated and robbed. But Hebrews says, you accepted that as a joyful, you joyfully accepted that because you knew you had something greater. You knew that you were rich in the next world. James Hamilton says that those who have this kind of wealth that Jesus is pointing about in these verses, they're like a poor man boarding the Titanic. And as this poor man boards the Titanic, he looks all around him and he sees men and women in fancy clothes wearing expensive jewelry and bags and bags and bags of luggage for their journey. All laughing and mocking at him as they walk by. And all this poor man has is a lifeboat. What a seemingly foolish thing to bring aboard a large and beautiful ship. But what he brought is the only thing that will be of any use when that ship sinks in the night. Jesus says what you have is of real value. You might be poor in the eyes of the world. You might look at what you have in your hands and say, I have nothing. But you have everything. Because you have heavenly riches. The next thing Jesus says, I know. I know your tribulations. I know your poverty. And I know your slander. The word slander here is actually the word blasphemy. Which again reminds us that Jesus knows all that Smyrna is experiencing because He Himself has experienced it. He experienced tribulation. He was rich but made poor and He was blasphemed against. And not, not only does Jesus know that they're being slandered, He knows who they're being slandered by. He says, I know the slander of those who think they are Jews and are not. 
but are a synagogue of Satan. Most likely this form of slander came in the form of being informants. Uh, the Jews would turn the Christians into the officials in Smyrna. Jews, they were exempt from emperor worship in the Roman Empire. Uh, they were an ancient religion, and, and the Roman Empire looked at them as, as a non-threat to the empire. So they were allowed to skip out on offering sacrifices at the temple. And for a time, many viewed the Christians simply as a Jewish sect. And they, they fell under that umbrella of protection. But then the Jews began to denounce the Christians. They, they aren't a part of us. They aren't, they aren't Jews at all. And they kicked them out of that umbrella of protection. In fact, the martyrdom of Polycarp is recorded that the Jews actually helped to gather the sticks that would be used to light the fire that burned them at the stake. And this was despite the fact that it was on a Sabbath. They hated the Christians in Smyrna. But what does Jesus say about these Jewish men and women? He says they aren't really Jewish. They, they may be Jewish by their family not line, but they come from a different spiritual line. They are a part of the adversary. They are in cahoots with Satan, the one who is described later in Revelation as the accuser of the brethren. They're joining in his work. Jesus said the same thing to the Jews who opposed him during his earthly ministry. He said, you might claim to come from Abraham, but I look at you and I see that you have a different father. And you're acting just like him. Because your father is the devil. Again, Jesus knows this because he has experienced this. Nothing that happens to Smyrna has not happened to him. He is truly the high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows. Is that not a great comfort? He, he knows. Whatever you're going through, He knows. An old hymn says, "My Jesus knows when I'm lonely. He knows each pain. He knows each tear. He understands every lonely heartache. He understands and He always cares. But not only does Jesus know what we're experiencing in the moment of our suffering, He knows what is on the other side of our suffering. And that's the third and the final thing He says to the suffering Christian. That all the suffering, all the slander, all the tribulation, all of it, it will be worth it. It is worth it. Following Jesus is worth the cost. No matter what that cost is, it is worth the cost. But notice what the cost is for these Christians in Smyrna. And that is, first of all, that the cost is great. The cost will be great. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. When Jesus says stop, when Jesus says do not fear, what he's actually saying is stop fearing. Stop being afraid, the Living Bible says. They are already fearing what is about to happen. And notice it's about to happen. It's not here yet. But about to happen means that it is at the door. It is imminent. It's about to walk into the room. The Christians in Smyrna, they can feel the pressure of the city rising. 
They, they, they notice that the slander is becoming more severe. They know that their poverty is getting worse. Just when they thought they couldn't get any poorer, they do. And they sense the tribulation rising. And with it, the hearts of the Christians in Smyrna are becoming more and more afraid. But Jesus says, stop fearing. Do you know that one of the most used phrases in the Bible is do not fear? I didn't look this up to check, but I think someone said it's used 365 times in the Bible. I don't think that's a coincidence that we have 365 days in a year. One time for every day in the year, God tells us, do not fear. Which tells us two things. First of all, there is a lot of things in this world that tempt us to fear. But secondly, God really wants us to know that with him, we don't have to fear any of it. And there's plenty to be fearful about in Smyrna. Jesus says some of you are going to get thrown into prison. But not only that, some of you for 10 days will experience this tribulation. Now, there's an argument whether or not this is a literal 10 days or a figurative 10 days. I lean towards a figurative 10 days. But either way, what Jesus is saying is the same thing. And that is that though your tribulation will be intense, it has an ending point. Your suffering has an expiration date. And God knows what it is. And nothing that the devil or the Jews of Smyrna or the city officials, nothing they can do can extend that date. And this is true for us as well. Your suffering has an expiration date. It may be intense, it may be long, but it will one day end. Your pain will end. Your trials will end. Your heartache will one day be gone. Your suffering has an expiration date. It will only last 10 days, Jesus says. Now, 10 days is a long time when you're on day five or six. But compared to other, some of the other numbers in Revelation, like the thousand-year reign of Christ, 10 days is not very long. And compared with eternity, 10 days is merely the blink of an eye. And Jesus tells them that these days of suffering will be hard, but they will end. Hold on. Like we sang, we're almost home. Be faithful even unto death. But but why be faithful even unto death? Why when the cost is so great? Because the reward is even greater. The cost is great, but the reward is greater. Jesus says in Revelation 2, 10 and 11, be faithful unto death because and, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt. And actually there's a double negative there. There's two no's. Will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's a crown of life waiting you. But the only way to get through it is death. And this is the only way to life for the Christian. The way of death. Not just physical death, but a daily death. A death to self. A death to sin. A dead to the world. But alive to God. All of us must be faithful unto death. And Jesus says that for those who remain faithful unto death, they do not have to fear the final death. You'll experience the first death, but you will not experience the second death. Which is an eternal death. An eternal lake of fire that separates us from all eternity from God. Everyone will die the first death. 
but those who are faithful to Jesus will be saved from the second. One such person who was faithful unto death was the pastor of this church in Smyrna, the Bishop Polycarp. And as I mentioned, at the age of 86, Polycarp was arrested and brought before the proconsul in this city of Smyrna. As they were on the way, one of the chief, or the chief of police, he, he tried to persuade Polycarp. He said, Polycarp, you're an old man. You don't have to go through this. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and, and just offering some incense? Save yourself. Polycarp refused. When he was brought before the proconsul, he tried to persuade, the proconsul tried to persuade Polycarp. Take the oath. I will release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp responded, 86 years I have served him. And he never did me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul replied, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Polycarp said, call them. I will not recant. When the proconsul replied, I, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beast, unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, the fire you threaten me with burns but an hour, and it is quenched after a little. But what you don't know is the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Come and do what you will. And they did. Legend has it that the flames did not kill him. So they began to stab him with swords and took his life that way. But Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was faithful unto death. Millions of Christians have followed in his footstep because they knew what was awaiting them on the other side of death was worth the cost. In fact, I would guess they would say it's not costing me anything compared to with what I am, what is awaiting me. He who has an ear, she who has an ear, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do not be fearful. Remain faithful. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us and you have given it to individuals in specific situations that we can learn from their experience. Father, how, how this word apply it to them and apply it to ourselves. But God, most of all, we thank you for your spirit that takes your word and applies it to our hearts. And this morning, I pray that we, as we leave here, we would be reminded of the call to be faithful. Father, in our time right now, we might not have to be faithful unto death. But Father, may we resolve now that if it comes to that, we will. Father, may we not use these days of ease and comfort to wallow away in entertainment and, and simply appeasing the flesh. But may we use these days to get stronger in our faith, to build up our endurance, to build up our perseverance. We do that by looking constantly to you. Father, may we be faithful. May we be the church of Smyrna. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite you to stand if you would. And since we have Revelation 2 open, let me send you out with the benediction in Revelation chapter 1. To him who loves us,
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, made you a kingdom priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. You are dismissed.